Coming up next, a podcast from Don and Becky Smith on their newest curriculum, Heart and Soul. This is session number one. Why do we relate the way we do in our marriage relationship? There's a reason why, and we really want to get to the root of it as we do. And so um, in order to do that, we got to see the bigger story as to why there's the conflict and struggle. And so the first part of this is simply this. Um, How the story begins is this, is that in the beginning, God always existed, which kind of blows my mind because I think of a beginning and an end, but God has always existed. And uh, he also had angels that served him. Uh, They took and uh, carried out his will, his purposes, and uh, they protected the glory of God. And so uh, God has all of his angels, and there's one angel that is in charge of all the angels. And probably most of you know this, but his name was Lucifer. And uh, one day, and so Lucifer's job was, his primary job was to, to uh, guard the glory of God. Evidently, one day, he becomes jealous of God's glory. He wants it for himself. His pride gets in the way, and he says, I want this for myself. And so with a third of the angels, he rebels against God and tries to overthrow God. He, he, doesn't, he isn't able to do that, and um, as a result of that, he's cast out of heaven. He's not destroyed, and with a third of the angels. But then, the next thing that happens is God comes along and he says, um, <clears throat> um, you know, then God takes and creates the heaven and the earth. And on the earth, he creates Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And so in Genesis chapter 2, we see that God creates man and woman in his image. And, uh, uh, and in such a special way that we can have a relationship with God, that we can know him and be totally fulfilled by him. And uh, what happens as a result is we are God's representatives on earth, and we're to reflect God's glory and and to uh, represent him. And so we could take and draw it something like this. If you could take the circle that you see on uh, page uh, 21 there at the top, and that is that this circle represents um, our relationship with God. And that uh, all that I need, because he created me, is uh, provided for him. My, my uh, source of security, love, value, to be totally known and accepted. In other words, God said, Don, you, you don't have to struggle with anything. Because I have provided what perfect love looks like. And so Adam and Eve are born into this situation in Genesis chapter 2. And then what we notice is that, so God creates Adam first, and he takes Adam from the dust of the uh, earth, and he breathes into him the breath of life, and he becomes a living creature. And there's Adam. God gives Adam instruction how to care for the garden and take care of things. He also says, don't eat of a certain tree in the middle of the garden, uh, lest you die. And so that's the instructions. But then God says this to Adam, it is not good that the man be alone. I will make uh, for him a helper suitable. And, and so the idea here is that God says, Adam, it's not good that you be alone. 
you need a helper, and by that, we'll look at that more deeply in another lesson, but it's someone who comes alongside and completes. It's not like, oh, he'll give her a helper to fix dinner and supper or laundry and that sort of thing, but it's much deeper than that, and that's someone who fulfills me. And um, the result of that is, is we're not only made for relationship with God, as you see in the center circle, but the, the second circle there talks about I'm, I'm made for relationship with others. And, um, and so I uh, have the capacity to, to relate in a meaningful way, to look to Becky for uh, certain relational needs and such, but deep inside, those needs are met by God. But we come to Genesis chapter 3, and we see here's Adam and Eve in the garden, and it says, and the serpent came, which is Lucifer, Satan came to uh, Eve in the garden and just said, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden? And you won't really die, will you? And, and so Satan presents these lies to twist what God has said, to take and to get Eve and eventually Adam to turn against God. In other words, God doesn't really know what's best for us. You need to take things into your own hands. Don't listen to what Satan has or God has to say. And so the doubt is placed in Eve, and somehow she eats of the fruit. And at that moment, um, as she eats it, it says that Adam was by her side. It says she gave some to Adam who was with her. And um, the idea here is that so Adam took it, and he eats of it also, and it says, and at that moment, their eyes were opened, and they realized that they were naked. Something happens when they took and decided to basically question God's trustworthiness and disobey him by eating the fruit. The result was is that they lost that relationship with it, that they had in the middle with God. So it looks something like this, because I want you to see this clearly. Here, here's where God was meeting our needs, and, and we're totally loved and accepted. But because of Adam and Eve's sin, God is removed, and uh, now there's shame and emptiness there, and we still desire to be loved and accepted and feel secure, but God isn't there to provide that. As a result of that is, what we do is we turn to our spouse and say, you're the lucky person who's going to make me feel loved. And we say, it's not unreasonable for me to take and say, Becky, here's how you should treat me. You should treat me with respect and love me and whatever list I want to have there because we were made for relationship. But in the center, I'm saying, you have to come through for me or I cannot be okay. And my question is, and so where does God fit into that? One of the things I say is this, a spouse does not make a good God. Because when I look to Becky to take and meet my needs, the result of that is, is I'm, gonna, I'm setting myself up to be greatly disappointed. And when I'm disappointed, I become angry. And I'm going to find a way to get her to come through for me. And the result is, is we all do this in some way. We all take and say, you know, you're going to come through for me to ease my shame and my emptiness and make me feel loved because there's a lot going on inside of me. 
And God has kind of been removed from meeting those needs. Now, we might say, yeah, but I looked to God, and I'm sure for many of us, we, we know what we need to do. But the hurt really goes deep. And whether we realize it or not, we're more demanding than we really realize. If you really want to know how selfish you are at your core, find out how you feel when your spouse doesn't come through for you. Marriage is probably the best place to know what's really going on inside of you. Because in that relationship, you're looking for that person to really meet deep needs. For um, There's some of you here I know and some I don't know. So let, let's just say for some of you that I know, I can get along just fine with you. You can say certain things to me. You can say certain things to me, and, um, and maybe they, they just have a little bit of a twist to it, maybe a little bit hurtful, but I can brush it off because I don't have to go home with you tonight. I don't have to live with you. And, uh, but, you know, Becky say those same things. I can get riled up real quick because I am looking for something much deeper from her than you, and I can write you off. And the result of that is the pain goes deep. So what happens, what are the consequences of Adam and Eve making a bad choice as to we will take things into our own hands versus trusting God and being obedient to God? And basically, it's affected um, three things here. The first one is our relationship with God. When we demand that our needs be met our way, um, it alienates us from God. And we're, we're saying, God, I don't trust you. And probably there's some of us that just say, God, you've, met, you've caused enough problems in my life, and keep your hands off of me. And, and so uh, it causes us to be on our own. Second one issue that it affects is our relationship with ourselves, in the sense of how do you feel about yourself? If I were to ask you tonight, how many of you have a low self-image, or kind of put yourself down or don't feel like you're that good or such, I would say probably two-thirds, if not more, of the hands would go up. Because things have happened in our lives, which we'll look at in two weeks, basically, that affect the way we see ourselves. And tonight, Becky and I are going to share our stories with you in a little bit as to why um, we struggle personally and how that affects our marriage relationship. Second or third is our relationship with others. Because of how I struggle, it affects the way that we struggle with others. So all of our relationships are affected by sin and the lies that Satan has given to us. I think that's well put in this verse in James chapter 4. And it says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that uh, battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. And what God is saying here, yeah, there's a lot going on inside. You want certain things, and, and there's desires inside of you. And you notice something. God never condemns our desires. If I were to say to uh, a husband who would say, you know what, uh, I, I just want my wife to respect me. 
I just want things to um, to go peacefully, and um, I, I want my wife to um, um, believe in me, uh, show affection to me. I wouldn't say to him, you're a selfish man, get over it. I would say, God placed those needs in you. The question is, is how are you trying to get those needs? And what um, uh, the author here in James is saying is that you're, you're looking for your spouse to try and find these needs in such a way that they don't come through for you. And the problem is you don't turn to God. The illustration has been given something like this, is that um, our marriage is much like uh, two ticks and a dog. Um, and that is that... Um, now I'm trying to remember how it goes. Um, oh, um, the two ticks... So you know what ticks do? They, they launch onto a host, and then they try and burrow in and get under the skin to suck nourishment blood, basically, uh, out of us, and, and they're healthy. And so if you could pretend for a moment that the two ticks are the husband and wife, the dilemma is this, is there's no dog. You have two ticks, but no dog, and they, so they don't have any place to take and get nourishment, so what they do is they try and get it from each other. And we're not good ticks, or we don't get the nourishment we need. And so where do we turn? What do we do? I I, um, I want to, on, on the bottom of page um, 21 for a moment, um, talk about uh, we enter a battle here. What I want you to see is this. When we took and um, were placed on earth here, um, remember Satan has been cast out of heaven and with a third of the angels. And Satan could not defeat God. And as a result of that, um, Satan turns his attention to you and me who are created in God's image. We're image bearers. And so Satan is basically saying, since I can't get to God, I'm going to get to his image bearers. And as a result of that, he's attacking us. And he's getting us to believe lies uh, about God isn't good and he's this and he's that and such. You can't trust him. Second is this, is that the Bible talks about our marriage relationship as oneness. In Genesis it says, uh, in chapter 2 it says, and the two shall become one flesh. And when we talk about one flesh, we're talking about all that I am coming together with all that Becky is body, soul, and spirit. We'll get into that in a later lesson. But the idea here is that oneness also reflects who God is. If you're, if you're familiar with the Godhead, there's the Father, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they're one, and we call that the Trinity, because there's three in one. And they exhibit oneness. We, in our marriage relationship, are to reflect oneness also. We're to reflect something about God that, that shows unity and, and caring for one another. You also find in the New Testament, it talks about the Christians, the believers, and their relationship with one another. And in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying before he takes and goes to heaven, or goes to the cross and to heaven, 
And uh, he says this, I pray for those, uh, for the believers, that they may be one as you and I are one. And so even the oneness of believers is important to God. So you have uh, the, the oneness of the Godhead, you have the oneness of marriage, you have the oneness of the believers. And what I'm trying to say to you is oneness is a big deal to God. It's not like, oh, it's, that's kind of a clever, nice idea. It's huge in the sense that God says, I want you to reflect me in your marriage relationship. But we've gotten so wrapped up in our hurts and our things that happen and the way the world looks at things and, and what commitment means that um, we don't even think about it. And so what I want to say to you is Satan is out to destroy your oneness. It's not like he's indifferent. Like, oh, you know, he's a, I see him attacking some other marriage relationships, but he's not attacking ours. He will. But I would say I think he already is, and many times we're not even aware of it. By just clever selfishness, by our attitudes and such. And now I may be stepping on some toes, but let me give one more point. One of my pet peeves is marriages in the church. There's a lot of marriages. Well, I'll give you an example. Uh, so Bridge to Life has been around 36 years. And we try to encourage churches to use the resources of Bridge to Life for counseling, these classes, and other things we do. And uh, so this is a, a couple years ago. And so I was talking with a pastor, and I, I just I told him about Bridge to Life, and I said, uh, would you like to promote our classes in your church? And uh, it's a church, maybe about 150, 200 people. And he says, we don't have any marriage problems in our church. You know, I'm, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, but um, our marriages are fine in our church. And I said, really? I said, that's the first church I've ever heard like that. Um, you know what? We all struggle. Here's the problem. A lot of the marriages are posers. They act like they're nice. And you know what I'm talking about. You drive to church and you're yelling and crying and screaming at each other. And when you open up the car doors, you're putting on the smile and you walk in and everything's fine. And then you go home and continue. I uh, recently talked with a husband who, uh, who, who just said, Don, I don't want anything to do with any Christian stuff. Um, he says, I believe there's a God, but that's all I'm going to go with. And, I, I, and when it's a situation like that, I'm not, I'm not out to change his mind, at least not at that moment. Um, and I, I'm curious why he feels that way. And so I said, why? And he said, I, my parents uh, were Christians. We went to church, but he said at home we treated each other horribly. We had a very dysfunctional family. And my parents fought all the time, and, and he said, I hated living in my family. But he said, but when we went to church, we acted like everything was nice. And he says, I don't like being a hypocrite. I said, I don't either. And I said, I can't blame you for feeling the way you do. But you know what happens is in the church, we just some of us are getting along. Nothing really bad has happened. But I would say, to what degree are you experiencing oneness in your marriage relationship where you're really 
connecting, where you're really there to minister to one another, whether, whether you, you can really trust each other in a sense of uh, being vulnerable and using your marriage for the kingdom of God. And I would say, no, you're probably just existing, and I'm not accusing anybody here, but I'm just saying, generally in church, they're just existing. They go to work, do their things, go to kids' sports, and do this and that and the other, and what's the purpose of your marriage? What are you accomplishing? Satan doesn't have to have you have an affair or some tragic thing happen. It's just simply this, that uh, you do nothing. Satan says, I don't have to worry about Don and Becky. They're not amounting to anything anyhow. Just let them be. And I would say, and for those of us that struggle, we see more directly, we got to fight for our marriages. And because of some of the things that have happened in your marriage, it's caused you to wake up and really start saying, uh, I, I, I got to get my life together. Talked with a couple just not too long ago. He said this, he was involved in an affair, and uh, his, his words were this, is, Don, probably two years ago, I started drifting from God. And uh, he, he just said, I really didn't care about things, and I just kind of did my own thing, and, and I just slowly entered into this marriage, or this affair. And I, he said, I honestly didn't think I was doing anything really bad at the time. And, um, and I would say, man, how did we get there? And I'm glad, and here's what he said. I almost forgot to add this. He says, he said, I'm so sorry I hurt God, my wife, and my children, and my friends. But he says, I'm glad it happened because it's caused me to wake up and say, I want to put God first in my life and my marriage and such, instead of I had a crappy attitude and things were a mess. And I would just simply say, I I don't know what brought you to this class, except my prayer is for each one of you that somehow that God stirs something deep and meaningful in your life that you've never experienced in a way that you can uh, have and enjoy a relationship that uh, can be what God designed. And so um, Satan is out to destroy that is what I'm trying to say. So let's uh, move on here a moment. Um, so, um, trying to figure out where I'm at. Um, okay, page 23. What I'm doing is I'm working off my old notebook, and the workbook that you have has been a little bit revised, and I'm trying to connect the two because I got all my little notes in my old one here. So um, what, I, what I want to talk about is um, how do you get your buttons pushed? So the question is, Don, what are you talking about, buttons? Um, what we're talking about, how do you get triggered? How does Becky trigger me that makes me really pissed off, angry, hurt, shut down, whatever words you want to um, use. On the bottom of page 23 there, you see uh, kind of what it means to get your buttons pushed. It's when you react quickly uh, in in a sharp way to something that's been said or done. Uh, You get angry quickly, you shut down, you get hurt, you get defensive. 
In other words, something is happening that makes you react. That's what we mean when you get your buttons pushed. I would say between Becky and I, we have a relatively good marriage. We haven't had anything really horrible happen. Um, as long as she does what I say, we get along good, you know. Um, right, honey? <laughs> good answer. <laughs> um, she'll speak in a minute and fix everything. Um, but you know what? When our marriage doesn't go good, it's when she triggers me. She has a unique gift in pushing my buttons that I don't react well at the times, right? Right. You don't have to talk. But but you have a unique way of tripping me up, too. It's my spiritual gift. But we all have that, right? We all have things that our spouse does that, and I just had a couple recently, a new couple come in, and they said, Don, we really have a good marriage. There's just a couple little things and I knew immediately. They got triggers. I wonder what they are. Those triggers are very important in our marriage because those triggers help us understand what's going on inside of us. And we'll look at that in just a moment. So turn over to the next page here. Um, what are some possible triggers? Uh, that you might have. And so we have a list here. Um, well, let's see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name um, what mine are, and if you want to share what yours are. Uh, mine are uh, when I feel um, like I'm being criticized or uh, Becky's negative attitude or when she corrects me. Or when she brings up the past. You um, see my name written there, but oh, I'm sorry, I wrote it in here. Um, other than that, we get along fine. Okay, those are triggers. Those are things that really get me stirred up. What are yours? Are you ready? No. Um, lack of response, not listening, um, silent treatment. Being laughed at, voice inflection, not what is said, but how it's said. Now, folks, just a little test here. Did you hear mine and hear hers? Hers to me are much worse than mine to her. Didn't you see that? (laughs) At least from my perspective, they are. You see, all of us feel hurt, and we're... We're about number one. Look what you're doing to me. Look how you affect me. And it's really hard for me. And when she says, when, give me the silent treatment, such, that's not a big deal, folks. But to her it is. And it's really hard for us to listen to each other's triggers. Because as soon as she brings it up, I can get defensive and say, well, what about this? And I did that. And I don't think you have a right to bring that up because look what you did to me. And off we go. Instead of stopping and just listening to, you know, Becky, I really want to know what 
how I trigger you. And then drop it and never bring it up again, okay? <laughs> um, no, I, I want to know what, I do, what effect I have on Becky, okay? Now, the, the question is, uh, what are your triggers? Um, now, in a little bit, we're going to tell you why we have these triggers. But um, take a moment, if you would, with, on your notebook there, and uh, just um, check off what you think your triggers are there. And there's room, if you don't think we have it listed there, um, there's a little space there for you to write them. Does anybody need a pen? Uh, we have some pens in the back if you need one. Just raise your hand and Greg will get you one. So, okay. So uh, just take one moment um, to do that. Okay, you've had pretty much a chance uh, to do that. If you're not finished, just continue. But um, triggers um, send a, self, uh, a powerful message. And when we get triggered, how do we, want, how do we usually respond? I can tell you when Becky triggers me, um, I can get angry. But I will usually say, or I have said this in the past, is, Becky, stop it. Don't go there, you know? Basically, I just want you to stop because I feel like you're hurting me, and um, I don't want you to do that anymore. How do you feel? I just get mad. That's, that's a knee-jerk thing. You do something that triggers me, and you're going you're gonna to hear about it. I'm yeah. not proud of it, but... Yeah, you don't hide your feelings no, too. I don't too easily. You hide yours. No, I, I handle you're, them very you're, nice. You're doing better. You're doing, <laughs> you're doing better, but early on, you would just get silent and get a little short and snappy. And so yeah. then I, yeah, so then I knew something was wrong, and then I had to dig, dig, dig until you finally blew up. Uh, that was her first husband she's talking about. <laughs> so, but, yeah, these feelings get stirred up. And as a result of it, we don't want to go there. Which brings us to the next point here, is just stop it. Uh, don't treat me that way. You know, uh, you stepped over the line. Um, I don't have to put up with this. Whatever you're thinking or saying is basically... I don't want to deal with this, and I don't want you to hurt me. In reality, there's a lot more going on, but we often don't think about it. But I want, I want to show you uh, a clip here, and um, you're familiar, uh, most, maybe the young ones wouldn't know, but uh, Bob Newhart, okay, most of you are familiar with Bob Newhart. I want to show you a clip here, and probably some of you have seen it, and uh, it kind of expresses the whole idea of um, just stop it. Uh, Dr. Switzer? We laugh. 
uh, I love watching this. I, I really love her expressions, like, and just those expressions on her face. But you know what? That's what we do to each other. When Becky brings something up and I don't like it, no, just stop it. Get over it. Instead of really pursuing. And what we're trying to do is let's think of it as an iceberg here for a moment. Um, when you look at the iceberg, is that all that there is? No, the top part that you see above the waterline is probably about 17 or 18 percent of an iceberg. The rest of it is deep under, under the water, which you have no idea where it is, except, you know, if you go by uh, with a boat of some sort, or the Titanic, and it hits some of that ice, um, it can do great damage because it has strange forms. And what we want to do is look at our marriage relationship in the context of an a, um, iceberg. There's the part that's above the water, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. And next week, we're talking about below the water line and uh, what that looks like. And so what, what's above the water line? And we're going to walk through these in just a moment. Um, the first one is how we react to each other or um, what pushes our button which we've kind of talked about. Uh, there is uh, things that I react to that are very obvious uh, as, as far as my reactions. It's the way that I feel hurt in the sense of um, uh, I have feelings and things going on that uh, affect me, and we're going to look at our feelings in just a moment. And the third area that's above the waterline is the wounds that we've experienced, hurts that have taken place in our, our past that have had a great effect on us. And so uh, those are obvious things that are above the waterline. What is below the waterline, which we'll look at next week, is this, is that because of the things that have happened to us, there's lies that we believe about ourselves and about how um, our life is. And as a result, we make vows to ourselves as to ways to protect ourselves. I will never allow anyone to get close to me for fear they could hurt me. Um, or and Becky and I will share our vows a little later, but um, the result of it is, is I am not going to allow you to do damage or hurt to me. And then the last one is in our marriage relationship, we develop what we call protective layers around ourselves to say, I'm only going to let you get so close to me. And, uh, and those layers really hinder us from deeper intimacy in our marriage. So we're going to walk through that. And as a result, if you take and put it um, above and below, it looks something like this, okay? And so tonight we're just talking about what does it mean to look at um, um, above the line uh, iceberg here. So turn with me to page 23 or 25, excuse me, 25. And what I, I want to talk about for a moment is um, um, if we're going to start looking deeper instead of just reacting to each other, where do we begin? And the first place to begin is what we're feeling as to um, what's, what's happening inside. Um, This diagram up here, let me explain it, is uh, on, on the 
left-hand side, it talks repress our feelings. A lot of, there's some of us that are really good at repress, repressing our feelings. Uh, I do that a lot. Um, it's just like, I'm not going to let this bother me. I'm not going to let it hurt me. Um, I'm not going to feel, and I, I just let things go. Or there's others who take and feel really good when they express their feelings. And usually, I would equate that to when we vomit on somebody. We just let them have it, and I feel much better when I unload on you. The problem is nobody else does. And uh, which one is healthy? Sometimes I've talked to individuals, usually they're guys that have gone to anger management uh, classes, and um, what they basically do is try and teach them how to handle their emotions better. Uh, one guy told me, uh, you know, take a bat and just hit your mattress and get all that frustration out or go exercise and do this and that. But uh, the reality is, where did these emotions come from? Uh, why are we just dealing with the symptoms of it instead of looking at the source of the uh, feelings? So look at it this way. I suppose everyone came in a vehicle tonight. I didn't see any horse and buggy out there, so um, we all have cars. And on the dash someplace is a little red light or a thing that says check engine if something's wrong with your engine. And uh, so why is that little red light there? It's to tell you that something's wrong, right? Some years ago, uh, when our kids were young, uh, Becky and I were traveling out west. Becky's uh, family is from Kansas, and mine is from uh, Arizona. And so we were traveling uh, to go visit them, and uh, we were going into the mountains of Colorado and such, and this is in the evening. We're trying to get to the next city, to a hotel, which is about an hour drive yet. And uh, as I'm driving, all of a sudden on our vehicle, the little red light comes on that says, check engine. Now, I don't know about you, but that creates a little anxiety. You know, you're, you're driving out in the middle of nowhere. The light comes on. There's no filling stations. It's not like pulling into uh, someplace. Um, and you got your family, five little kids. And so, you know, what do we do? And it's like, I don't want to stop for fear... I might not get going again, so I'm going to keep going until the car stops, I suppose, because it's getting dark. And, um, but the more I drove, it seemed like that little red light got brighter and brighter, okay? Um, truthfully, it didn't get brighter, but what happened was um, it uh, sure seemed like that as I looked at it. So it was really bothering me, and, and some of you are familiar with probably the Pontiac 6000 station wagon. Um, on the dash, it had like a little shelf there in front of the instruments. And so I just took my wallet out. It wasn't this one, but one like this one. And I just propped it in front of the little red light and covered it up. And I felt a whole lot better, okay? (laughs) And we drove on. We got to our town. The next morning, went to a dealership. They checked it, and they said, oh, there's a little button on here that, you know, every so many miles it goes off, so you go have your engine checked and it you you met those so many miles and it's like thanks for doing that to me and uh, everything was fine but you know what what was the issue with that little red light the problem wasn't the red light 
The problem is, is that that little red light is hooked by a wire that goes down into the engine. And when something goes wrong with the engine, it signals the light. I can cover up the light, but the problem is still in the engine. Can I just say that our emotions, our feelings are much like the red light that go off that should be a signal that something is going on inside of me. You see, we don't just get angry for no reason at all. And often what we say, you make me angry. Nobody makes you angry. It's how you interpret what they said or what they did toward you because there's something, you know, there, there's something one of you could do um, to me. Well, let, let me give you a better exam, example. Um, last uh, April, uh, my sister, I have three sisters, you'll see them in a picture in a little bit, um, passed away from cancer. And uh, it was quite a shock to us. Um, we found out uh, about her cancer, and three months later, it took her. And um, and you would and, and you would say, and I would say, you know what that that has really shaken me up. It's one thing for your parents to pass away, which both of them, uh, both of our parents have passed away. You know, when they get older, you expect that. But a sibling that's younger than you, that kind of just hits home a little differently. And um, so it makes me sad. It made me struggle. And you would say, well, Don, the reason you, you are sad is because your sister died. No. Let's say I read the paper this evening. We don't get the paper, but I, or go on the Internet. Let's keep it contemporary. Go on the Internet, and I read about someone dying. I'm not sad. Oh, you know, uh, some rock star just died a day or two ago. Some of you probably saw that. It didn't bother me at all because I didn't know him. But I knew my sister. The issue isn't if someone dies. The issue is what do they mean to me? And the same thing with you and me. It's when something happens, how do I interpret that? What does that mean to me? Because um, there's some things that aren't going to bother me at all but it's because of the way I think about that thing. And what I'm trying to say to you is the things that affect you that your spouse does is because of the way you think about it deep inside. And so what we'd like you to do, uh, we'll do this and then take our break, but go over to page um, 26. And... uh, Finding the meaning behind our pain. How I feel when my buttons are pushed. And we, we put some words there. Shame, guilt, self-contempt, um, fear, inadequacy, insecurity, criticize, anger. My question is, uh, if you can just check the box there as we're going through this. But I would say, what do you feel when your spouse pushes your buttons? For me... Uh, probably the two words that stand out, uh, three words, inadequate or inadequacy, criticized, and anger, okay? And I would say, so I feel angry. Uh, just, just to give you an idea, anger is what we call a secondary emotion. By that, we mean this. 
Yes, you get angry, but something causes the anger. Your anger, the ang- your anger isn't your main problem. It's what causes the anger that's your real issue. And so these are what we might call secondary uh, emotions. But as you see right below that, um, the way that your tr- spouse treats you sends a message that um, speaks loudly about what's going on inside of you. So here's a list we put, and let me just read through it here. Uh, I, am, I am incompetent. I am not important. I am on my own. I am not valued. I do not come first. I am not enough. I, what I think is not, isn't important. I don't fit in. I am, I am not understood. I am not worthy of respect. I am not worthy of love. I am always wrong. I am the black sheep, and I don't measure up, and I can't get it right. Those are deeper feelings that I feel when my buttons get pushed other than just angry. In other words, there's a message behind the anger that I'm feeling here. And so uh, my question would be, which ones do you feel? I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share mine here real quick. I feel incompetent. Sometimes I feel like I'm on my own. There, there's a part of me when, when I feel hurt, um, it's like, in my mind, I don't say this out loud to Becky, but I don't need you. I can be, I'll be okay on my own. Now, that doesn't mean I'm leaving the marriage, but I'll just shut down toward you. I don't like that thought and feeling that goes on inside of me, but it's a sign I'm feeling hurt inside that I need to take look deeper. I might feel like I'm not enough. Um... I definitely feel at times I don't fit in. Um, I don't measure up. I can't get it right. Those would be mine. How about you, Becky? Uh, I might feel incompetent. I am not enough. What I think isn't important. I'm not understood. I don't measure up. I can't get it right. Okay. So what we would like you to do is um, take a a minute here and just go over that list if you haven't already, and would you check off the ones that uh, you you feel like that's the message I receive when I feel triggered, and we'll give you a minute to do that, and we'll take our break. So go ahead and do that. Okay, uh, you can finish if you haven't finished, but um, for break uh, tonight, um, what they have isn't very good. I wouldn't go get it if I were you. Um, All the more for you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Um, but uh, they got some treats for you back there. Uh, just go through that door and help yourself. There's pop and water there, coffee. Um, help yourself on that, okay? So we'll start up in about eight minutes. All right, Um, so we're talking about feelings. We're talking about that there is stuff going on inside of us. What we're trying to do is make a connection now between how I feel 
and when have I felt this way before in my past? And so this is where we want to take a look at our story as to perhaps uh, what is, uh, where are these feelings coming from? So uh, with that, uh, we're on page uh, 27, finding the source of my pain. And um, has there been a time in my childhood where I've had some of these feelings before? Where I've felt uh, not important, not adequate, or fearful, or whatever, but um, the chances are very high that that's being triggered from some message from the past. And so, um, hopefully, so let me share a couple thoughts here. Hopefully, as we kind of talk about some of these things, we're not here to bash our family, our parents, um, or to shame anybody what we've gone through. Um, but the reality is, is none of us have had a perfect upbringing. We haven't had perfect parenting. Uh, there's some of you, if you were to come up tonight and share your story, uh, they, they would probably bring some of us to tears in the sense of, I, I can't believe you had to go through that. And there's others of us that, you know, I had a relatively good family, my parents were good, and nothing bad happened, and um, everything would seem somewhat fine. But what I want to say is, but in some way, we have all been affected. We're not here to compare stories. We're not here to take and say, oh, yours is really bad, mine's not so good, and such, because every one of our stories is important. Um, Give you an example. Um, You might be familiar with an organization called Johnny and Friends. Uh, It's an organization that uh, works with handicapped, special need um, children and adults. And uh, the founder of it, Johnny, Eric Santata, um, when she was 19 or 20, dove into a pool, and it was not as deep as that she thought it would be, and she broke her neck when she dove. And uh, since then, she has been paralyzed all of her life, uh, or the rest of her life. And she has started an organization called Johnny and Friends, where they go around the world and, and provide uh, wheelchairs and different resources to help these kids or adults who would normally not be able to do much. They also work with uh, special need kids that have certain um, disorders uh, that uh, greatly affect the children or child. And so they do a terrific work. Uh, Once a year, they come to Maranatha, to Muskegon here, uh, the Chicago team. They have like 27 places across the U.S. headquarters. And uh, they come to Maranatha for two weeks uh, to provide uh, a place for the family to come because some of these families have uh, one, two, three special needs kids. And if any of you have or know someone with special need kids, it's a 24-7 thing. And, and when you hear the stories of just what some of these families have to put go through, it's just like, Lord, I don't know how they do it. And such and so, 
Um, for the last uh, five years, I think it is, we have offered um, our services to Johnny and Friends where we go and do small groups with uh, marriages, and uh, I provide counseling uh, for two weeks for them. And uh, when we were asked to do this, I just felt so inadequate, like what do I have to offer to these couples who are really struggling? And especially, uh, I, I can't even identify with what they have to go through. And I, I just said, you know, I, they, they asked if I would do the, or we would do this, and I said, we're not qualified. And, uh, and they said, but you know what? Uh, you've gone through things, not the same, but you know what it's like to go through difficulties. And they said, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata says this, we do not compare crosses. In other words, we don't compare uh, your cross is worse or mine's better than yours or such because we all have to carry our own cross. Your cross is important. My cross is important. And so we don't compare crosses. We each bear our own. And uh, so we just went, entered into that in the sense of we'll help and serve any way we can. And uh, it's been a uh, privilege to take and come along a lot of those marriages but what I want to say is, is we're here tonight. We're not here to compare our stories, like whose is worse and this and that. Whatever your story is, it's important. Uh, God knows about it. You're, you didn't go through this alone. And um, we want to take, and take a look at that. So um, there's several areas, three main areas we want to look at in respect to what uh, we might struggle with or feel. And the first one on page 27 is uh, what we call uh, difficult uh, situations in the home or uh, difficult uh, issues growing up. Um, It might be um, you had parents who divorced or you might have parents who were had substance abuse issues such as alcohol or drugs. There might have been sexual addiction by parents or pornography or inappropriate uh, behavior. Emotional uh, needy parents, they relied on you for their emotional needs. Uh, There was adultery on the part of one or both of the uh, parents. Uh, Numerous uh, uh, moving uh, numerous times while growing up. Uh, Maybe the death of a family member. Uh, or someone close, parents continually in conflict, parents who were gone a lot and working in uh, church or whatever, but uh, you were left alone a lot, Uh, critical parents or parents who did not share of themselves um, or their emotions, and the list could go on. We're trying to give you some ideas here, the type of home situations that perhaps could affect us. Um, I remember, um, share a couple stories here with you. Um, one time, this is a few years ago, counseled a guy and, um, he, he was, he got angry easy and, uh, he really struggled in his marriage. In fact, his wife wanted a divorce. And, um, so as I'm talking to him about, um, just trying to find out what's behind his anger and just this, uh, fear. And um, he told me this story. He said uh, when he was young, probably 
um, seven, eight, maybe nine on the high side, uh, years old. Um, he and his little sister would walk to school, and his job was to get her there safely. And um, when they would cross the street, his little sister would hold his hand as they crossed the street. And on one particular day, as they're walking to school and crossing the street, uh, she's holding his hand, and um, she drops something in the middle of the street, and she lets go of his hand to pick up what she dropped, and she's hit by a car and is killed right there. And um, as tragic as that is, What's more tragic is his parents never talked about her death or discussed it with him. He said, no one ever sat down and told me it wasn't my fault. He said, they didn't blame me, but he said, they didn't tell me it was not my fault. And he says, when I, he said, uh, the next day her room was cleared out. Everything was taken out of her room. It was empty and her name did not come up again in our home. And he had to grieve on his own and try and figure out and make sense of what happened to my sister other than she died, but is it his fault and how do you grieve? And he says, my parents never brought her name up again. So can you imagine growing up with where things aren't dealt with and the impact that that would have? I'll share one more story. What you are listening to is a Bridge to Life Heart and Soul curriculum taught by Don and Becky Smith. You you might say, well, certain things happen. Why let them bother you? So let me share a story. There was um, a couple, this is some years ago, that um, came to class like you are. And uh, this they're halfway through the class series and and. Somehow, so the the couple on their way home would stop and get coffee or stop at, I think it was a um, pizza hut and get something to eat. And um, so the wife asked her husband, what did you think of the lecture tonight? Some of the things Don said, as if that she wanted him to pick up on some things that should apply to him. And um, he said it was okay. And as she pushed, he got a little resistance and didn't go where she wanted him to. And so she became very upset and angry with him. And she took her cup of coffee and just tossed it on him. Now, what's significant is he's a salesman, so he's always dressed in a suit and jacket and, or shirt, white shirt and jacket and such. And so she just dumps it on him and walks home because they're not very far from there. And so the next morning he calls the office and says, Don, we need an emergency counseling session and uh, we need to get in right away. There happened to be a space, so he came in. And he said, Don, my wife is out of control. You need to do something to help her. Uh, but uh, here's what she did. So I began to talk, and just her anger um, was right at the surface and a lot going on. So as we began to do the counseling and went through some sessions, um, what happened was, um, here's the story she told. Because one of the things she would do, he said, Don, I can't do anything without her watching me and, um, and is critical of everything. She said, uh, he doesn't, uh, he said, she doesn't trust me at all. Uh, 
when we walk down the street, I have to look straight ahead. I dare not look at any women. He said, uh, my, my kids and my wife love to go to the beach in the summertime, but I'm not allowed to go for fear of looking at women. Um, he said, uh, even on TV, on the television, he said that um, she controls the remote control in case anything provocative comes on. Um, she changed the channel or what. And, um, and he says, I've just learned to live with that. And, um, and I, she said, yeah, that's true. And I said, so what's going on inside of you? And I said, has he ever had an affair? Has he ever lusted after women or whatever? And she said, no, he's never done anything. So which leaves the question, so what's going on? So here's the story she told. She said, when I was about uh, 13 years old, my, my mother bought a very pretty dress for me. And she said, I tried it on, and Mom said, go show Daddy in the living room. So she went, goes into the living room, and she says, Daddy, see my new dress that Mom got me? And uh, he says, yeah, turn around and such. And she shows it off, very proud of it. And he says, fine. And she begins to walk out of the room, and then he says these words. He, he gives her name and says, you're pretty, but you're not beautiful. And she stops and says, what, what do you mean, Daddy? And he says, I just want you to remember, you're pretty, but you're not beautiful. I have no idea, nor she, why he would say that. Maybe he thought she was a little bit over-enthused and such, but uh, she was a, a, a nice-looking woman. But she didn't feel that way. Um, here's what went on side of her. What's wrong with me? That daddy would say, I'm pretty, but I'm not beautiful. And she had no clue. So what she began to do at that point is compare herself with other women. You know, you're beautiful. I'm only pretty. And what she was afraid of when she got married is this, is when will my husband find out the same thing about me as my father did, that I'm pretty, but I'm not beautiful. So as long as my husband does not look at any other women, Hopefully he thinks I'm still pretty, and I have to control that. You see, there's, there, there's, a, there's a source for that. And what I'm trying to say is things that affect us send a message. The second area that uh, we have here is acts of abuse. And by that, we're just talking about when a child has experienced emotional, verbal, mental or physical abuse, they do not feel safe to attach, trust, or be valued. And so if there's sexual abuse, whether it's physical, visual, or molestation, rape, physical abuse, such as hitting, confining, uh, beating, verbal, um, where it's, it's demeaning, swearing, name-calling, insulting, crude joking, Emotional, such as shaming, threatening, uh, and so on, intimidation. If you flip the page, there's also emotional incest. And this is where a child is placed in the position of uh, being an adult, where the parent depends on that child to meet their emotional needs, uh, which is what uh, we call triangulation, where 
that child is brought in as kind of equal as replacing a spouse. Or there might be spiritual abuse where we use where scripture is used to control or manipulate uh, the child. So there, there's different types of uh, abuse situations that um, can have a huge effect. And the next area is uh, what we call neglect or unmet developmental needs. And what this means is when we have not been aff- uh, validated, affirmed, or pursued as to who we are, how we feel, or what constitutes our basic needs, it becomes difficult to know how we feel. Um, we also lack good training in how to attach uh, appropriate inappropriate relationships. So in other words, what this area is, look at it this way. It's where you lived in a home that nothing bad necessarily happened. Because I would say there's probably a good number here that said, you know, I wasn't abused. Nothing really bad happened in my home. But healthy things that should be in a home maybe didn't happen to you, okay? In other words, um, uh, you weren't pursued emotionally. Um, you weren't praised. Uh, not being understood or listened to. Not receive, You didn't receive hugs or physical nurturing. Um, you were not received, but rather with coldness and rigidity. Uh, you weren't told you were loved. Uh, not receive adequate food or shelter or medical care. Not experiencing freedom uh, because uh, you were sheltered or protected as a parent, uh, by a parent, in a way that says that you don't have what it takes. Uh, not having personal responsibility since a parent makes all the decisions. Not safe to share your feelings or thoughts. Not parented well or being left to raise yourself. Not enjoying a loving bond, but instead experiencing fear-induced loyalty. So in other words, nothing bad has happened, but these other messages are going on. I'll give you an example. For me personally, I was never praised by my parents, particularly my dad. And uh, so when I did something good, he either said nothing or he pointed out something that I missed. And the reason he gave for not praising me is he said, I don't want you to get a big head. So I guess I shouldn't have a big head. So therefore, um, I don't deserve praise. And But to this very day, I crave praise. How did I do? What do you think of it? And, um, but you see, in a healthy relationship, you praise somebody. But in mine, uh, there wasn't that. Uh, and so what I want um, to do is, Beck and I want to share our stories with you. And um, um, hopefully what we want you to do is go through this, this list, and we'll share a few more ideas at the end of the class here, but... Uh, which ones of these boxes would apply to you that can begin to help you think and uh, go a little bit deeper into your story. Uh, But before we tell our stories, I I want to, um, Greg, if you could uh, flip the light on this one for us. Um, This is um, a video clip. It's called uh, Still Face. Um, 
some of us might think this way, that, you know what, uh, what happened to me as a young child really doesn't affect how I feel. And you'll see in this video that um, a child reacts strongly to even silent messages that are there. So, um, let's see, where am I here? So you can see it has a tremendous effect. The, the mother didn't do anything wrong or bad. She just didn't respond. And that creates the stress in the child. And I would say, for some of you, how did you really feel? What was the stress you experienced in your family when certain needs weren't met or there wasn't the interaction that was there? And so um, what Becky and I want to do is... Um, Share our stories. Becky will go first since your slide is up first. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. And before I start, I just wanted to say we're not here to bash our parents. We loved our parents, but it's just that each child in a home is going to take something different away in that home. And so it's just what I perceived in my home and what, what I experienced um, there were six of us kids in the family. I'm the oldest of the second batch. I'm the one with the broken arm. Um, that was shortly after we had moved from southeastern Kansas to central Kansas. Um, my mother was the only living heir after her sister died to take care of my grandparents, and so um, we moved the family up to central Kansas, and my dad had to stay down and teach. Uh, he was uh, the principal of the school, and so he had to stay and fulfill his contract before he could join us. So um, um, my home was one of, um, he was just an extremely critical person, and uh, we would have, you know, he would play with us and we would have fun with him, but then also there was that piece of him that you never knew whether he was going to be in a good mood or a bad mood, and I learned very quickly as a child to kind of test the waters and see where he was and try to to be that child that never rocked the boat and got in trouble. Didn't always work. He was also um, my coach in basketball and baseball, and um, on the way home, you, it, it didn't matter whether you did good or you did bad, you heard about it all the way home. But um, you relived every play. So the home was kind of walking on eggshells a lot. Uh, So when we moved, um, it was like when being down with my father, being that he was the principal, we felt kind of important because our dad was the principal. Well, when you get uprooted and you get moved to another town and you haven't had time to adjust, um. It's just really hard, and I, and after talking with my siblings after my parents had passed away, we all felt the same way. We felt like we'd been uprooted, and none of us felt like we fit in, and uh, it was difficult. But for me, I was in fourth grade, and I just couldn't find my place. It was hard, and they were very clicky, and um, I just didn't feel good about myself, so... My mother thought, well, we'll put put the kids in 4-H. 
And the only thing about that is the same kids that are snotty at that school are the same kids that are in the 4-H, so that that didn't play out real well. And, um, you know, I made it through that year, and it was the the night of the awards banquet. Well, you don't know me very well, but I I like to... I like rewards. I like I like gifts. I like surprises. Um, so I was looking forward to the banquet, thinking that maybe I had done really well in my sewing or in my cooking, and I was going to get some recognition. So one of my peers was up on the stage um, calling off names, and somehow I thought I heard my name. So I get up. And I walk up on that stage, and I'm standing there, and everybody's getting their award until I'm the only one standing there. And my peer looked at me and said, what are you doing up here? And I said, well, I thought I heard my name. And he called me a fool, a stupid fool, and said, I I didn't call your name. And everybody laughed, and I died a million deaths right then and there. I think if I had been... You know, maybe if I'd been down in my other in the other city where, you know, I felt good about myself, I probably could have laughed that off. But already feeling insecure, that that just did me. And I went back down to my seat. And if I could have been invisible, I would have been. Or if I could have hidden under my chair, I would have been. And um, I never and t- never told my parents that story. I just never wanted to, to do 4-H or do anything. Um, so fast forward um, to our marriage. You know, Don wants to start this ministry. And I had made a vow that night when I was very young that I would never, I believed the lie that I was a fool because that kid said I was a stupid fool. So in my mind, I'm stupid, so I'm going to avoid... I'm going to avoid any anything that I have to be up front of with people or and, and to show my foolishness. And so he wants me to be up here being a part of what he's doing, right? And um, I, I had forgotten the story. I just knew I didn't like to be up in front of people. And it wasn't until I got some counseling that that story came up. And so uh, to be able to share that with him um, took some courage. Um, One of the things that uh, triggers me is if I'm laughed at. And if if I'm telling a joke, that's okay. But if it's I'm the reason you're laughing and I get embarrassed, then, you know, that's a trigger for me. So I knew that if I shared this story with him, just knowing him, I knew he would laugh, but I had to take the courage to at least share with him because I felt like if he knew my story, that would help him understand why I would never get up in front of people with him. So what you have to understand is, so we start this ministry, and for years she would not sit up front. She wouldn't be a part of teaching. Um, Becky typed your workbooks here, and she runs the office and takes care of appointments and everything. She does a terrific job, but she wouldn't do this. And, you know, you see a lot of other couples minister together, and I just felt like she should be doing this with me. And uh, 
and I didn't handle it well. I, I would I would kind of make her feel guilty. I would say things about her not being up here, and I even accused her of being unspiritual. Um, and so none of my techniques worked until one day we went out for pizza. Remember? Um, no, we haven't told that story. Um, I can't remember what we told you. Um, but we went out for date night, and Becky says, you know, there's something I've never shared with you before. And I said, oh, what's that? And she thinks a little bit and says, I can't tell you. What? You know, we've been married all these years, and you can't tell me? She said, no, I can't tell you. And no matter what I asked, she wouldn't share, which, you know, the more you think about it, the worse the thoughts go through your mind. <laughs> and... Um, and I, so I pulled out my counseling technique, which was to take and uh, ask a question. Uh, like, so why, I said, you don't have to tell me why, just, or, or what it is, just tell me why you can't tell me. And she says, oh, it's because you would laugh at me. I said, Boy Scouts honor, I never was a Boy Scout, but um, I said, uh, I won't laugh, and I convinced her, so she told me, and she told me this story, which made perfect sense why she wouldn't get in front of people for fear of being shamed and laughed at. And he did laugh. He, he did. She thinks I did. I no, did. He did. Tears running down his face. He it, was, was it was funny. But I don't understand why, except that he laughed and then I laughed because he was laughing. Well, knowing Becky, I can just picture this in video form here. and It's like... Yeah, you blew it. Just admit it. <laughs> It was a faulty video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. so so some of the trigger things besides him laughing at me is, um, well, he's not going to like this one, but I'm going to share it anyway because he always denies it every time I say it. We're out of time. No. Um, <laughs> um, you know, because my father would get angry and, and sometimes slam things around mm. when Don decides to help me with the dishes and I start hearing slamming. He says he's not slamming things around, but sometimes I think he is. But he blames it on the dishes, that they're really noisy dishes. What kind of dishes do we they're have? They're the Corel dishes, and they do make noise. But um, that's a trigger for me because I think he's mad. Um, um, and then like the, his lack of response just really triggers me. And one thing that... Um, I learned about myself that I, I hadn't realized is every time he would try to come and and maybe share something that really did need to be dealt with, I would take it as a criticism and take it personally and get very defensive, and I would cry. And then he would back off. Well, when I went into some counseling, um, the counselor... Towards the end of the session, he had shared something, and I started to cry. And at the end of the session, he stood up and said, and frankly, I don't buy your tears. And he walked out. I was furious with him. I thought, how how dare he say that? My tears are genuine. But it made me take a look at myself and and see. And there's nothing wrong with tears, but I was using it in a way that was a manipulating form that, uh, you know, I'd cry, he'd back off, and nothing ever got dealt with. So for me, it was something that I needed to confess to him that 
this is what I've been doing, and I don't, I don't want to do that, and I need you to push through the tears, even if I am crying, and deal with the situation that you need to. Um, and so that was, that was growth for me. And um, yeah, I, th- I think um, we'll, we'll talk more about the lies and that type of thing that I believe, I think, in another lesson or so. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Um, so let me just share a little bit of my story. Uh, next week, Becky and I will not be here. Doug Moorhead will be here teaching. He'll share his story also. But um, I want to just share a little bit with you. Uh, I, w- I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were missionary to the Navajo Indians, which, oh, yeah. Um, that's Becky's grandparents. Uh, but uh, here's my uh, picture with um, uh, my two older sisters. The one on the left uh, passed away last year. But um, um, so anyhow, my parents were missionaries on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. And... Um, hello there we go okay um so um so when we moved there there was an indian school you all right okay um i thought you were falling or something when we moved uh to uh the mission station there there was an indian school there and i was the first and oldest white child to be there. And so it was unclear whether white kids could go to school with Indian kids. This is back in 1954, 55. And so my parents kept me out of school one year um, while the mission made a decision whether I could go to school with Indian kids. They decided that I could, so I started school. And then uh, my next issue was I didn't read well and I had difficulty reading, and so in the third grade, they decided to keep me back one year to improve my reading. So if your math is any good, now I'm two years behind normal kids. And the question is, what is it like to be two years older than the other kids in the class and, uh, and still don't read very well? And the result of that is is that you kind of feel stupid, you feel dumb. And so what I begin to do is to make jokes. And I, you know, you may not find me funny, but um, that was my way of hiding. Is Don really that stupid or is he that funny? So to hide behind the, the laughter. And even to this day, sometimes Becky will say, you know, I want to talk about something and I'll make a joke to kind of break it up instead of really listening to her. Because inside there's just this fear of what if I'm not enough for her or I have the right answers for her. And another thing that significantly impacted me is uh, my dad, um, as I shared, never gave compliments. He was always, um, it seemed like always pointing out something. He, he never yelled or, or swore or anything like that. But it was always, uh, you missed that or what about that or why did you do this and such. And um, so... Grew up with that. We moved to Michigan, Becky and I. We have our family. In 1983, we start Bridge to Life Ministries. And, um, and I realized pretty quickly that um, I need more education than I had. And I realized I need to get my master's in counseling. 
And so uh, I was recommended to go to Grace Seminary in Indiana. And so we still needed to run the ministry. So one day a week, I would run to uh, Indiana to take classes all day and then come back and do Bridge to Life. And um, before I start taking classes, about a week before, I call my dad, who is in Arizona, and uh, I say, Dad, by the way, I'm going to be attending uh, Grace Seminary and taking classes uh, in counseling. And um, so I kind of share this with him. And instead of saying, son, I'm proud of your ministry, um, of course, he would never say that and uh, such, uh, he said, uh, what kind of school is it that you're going to? Are they biblical? Do, do they really teach the word? And what are they like? And he goes through all these questions about what kind of school it is. Dad, I've checked it out. It's a good school. They're solid. So on. We get through that. And then he says, well, how far is it to the seminary? I said, it's about 175 miles and uh, each way. And he said, uh, well, what's the condition of your car? And I said, um, it's in good shape. And he said, do you change? Literally, this is the way it goes. He says, uh, do, you, did you, uh, do you change your oil regularly? And I said, yes, I, I take care of it. And he said, uh, are your tires in good shape? Yeah, Dad, they're, they're relatively new tires. And um, he asked a couple more questions about my car. And he says, you know, uh, don't the winters kind of get bad in Michigan? And I said, well, they can. And he says, it would probably be good if you, when you're traveling, make sure you take a snow shovel with you in case you get stuck. And he said, also, take a blanket with you because if you get stuck, it might be cold and you want to keep warm. Yeah, Dad. And he says, and probably should take some flares with you just for safety. Yes, yes, Dad. I hang up the phone, and how do you think I feel? Like an incompetent little boy. You know what? I live in Michigan. I'm married. We have, at that time, five children. And um, I haven't killed any of them from neglect or abuse or anything, you know? <laughs> we seem to be functioning quite well here. And yet he treats me like a little boy who doesn't know for sure what to do. And what I want to say is that that's the way most of my phone calls were. As you can guess, I didn't call my dad very often because it was always the same sort of deal. That when I hung up, I felt like an incompetent little boy. Now, do you think that affects our marriage relationship? It absolutely does. Because when Becky questions me, or corrects me, or tells me something that I should be doing, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, and, uh, and something inside of me is just like, ugh, you know? And, and I, what I've said to Becky in the past is, stop it, you know? Uh, don't treat me that way. And she'll say, what are you talking about? And I said... I was just asking a question. No, you weren't. <laughs> um, yes, I was. But I didn't hear it that way. I heard my dad's voice through Becky saying, you don't know what you're doing, or you're doing it wrong, or something is wrong, and you're incompetent. And the issue isn't Becky, because I believe with all my heart, Becky doesn't try to put me down, even though I feel like it at times. But it's that old message coming back. Okay? And so what I want to say here as we close tonight is there's things in our past that affect us. 
And what we want you to do is begin to explore your story. I'm going to share in two weeks a little bit more of my story that significantly affects me. But, um, but what I, I want you to see is how does my story affect me personally and how does it affect my marriage? There's some uh, worksheets uh, in your book there. If you go to page um, 31, you see uh, this right here, and it's above the waterline iceberg. And tonight we've talked about uh, how your buttons get pushed, how do you feel, and what's, uh, what's the meaning of the pain, what's your wounds. What we would like you to do is go back and just summarize briefly here Fill in the blanks for that. There's a reason for doing this because um, I think it's lesson five. We're going to go back and use some of this information to help work with. If you don't fill it out here to have a brief summary of it, you're going to struggle in lesson five. So this is a good way to just kind of walk through and jot down what um, affects you. On page uh, 32... There are some questions to help understand your story or wounds. Uh, just some questions. Uh, some of them may mean nothing to you, and others will probably be important. And so I would suggest to help you look at your story, go through these things. We all have a story. We're not here to beat up our parents, but to rather just understand how have things affected me. I love my dad dearly. He died in 1989 from prostate cancer. And I miss him dearly. And I would do anything to have more time with him. But he didn't always do things right. And I have to, need, I have to look at how did that affect me. That doesn't change my view of my dad at all. The other thing I want to say is uh, some of these things have probably affected you more than you realize, but you don't realize it. Um. It's, it's like you're so used to living your life the way you do that you're, you're oblivious to how it affects you. For example, in 1972, I was in a motorcycle accident. And um, I broke my left leg in three places and severed the nerve in the artery. And uh, to this day, it still bothers me. In 2013, so six years ago, uh, in the dark in our backyard, I tripped over the garden hose and fell. And just the way I fell, snapped my femur, and I broke my femur again. And uh, I've had complications more so since that. And uh, as a result, uh, I limp. Okay? Some of you maybe observed me walking, and some of you like, what? Last night we had a Bible study. Greg, uh, who's at the back table there, uh, was there. And uh, we were talking about issues. And, and the, Greg, this is not negative at all, but let me just share it. And so when we, so there's uh, nine of us guys in the Bible study, and uh, we're studying Job, and then we have a time of any prayer requests. But uh, I'm getting ready to leave for Czech Republic here in a few weeks, and uh, I just asked for prayer that I can walk well, because walking, you have to do a lot of walking there, and that could be a problem. And uh, so I asked for prayer. And so Greg prayed for me, and in it he said this, 
he said, uh, pray for Don's limp. And when, he heard, when I heard those words, and it wasn't bad, Greg, but uh, I have a limp? I didn't think of it. I just, my leg hurts. Um, and it's like, and I, I went home as I go to sleep. Gosh, I got a limp. I forgot. You know? Um, I wonder if people notice it. Greg, <laughs> Greg noticed it. And, uh, and it's it just like, you know what? A lot of us have a limp is what I'm trying to say. And we're so used to it, we're oblivious to it. But other people can see it. My question is, what is your limp tonight? Personally, and how it affects your marriage relationship. So um, let me close in prayer, okay? Lord, uh, tonight I just pray for each person, each marriage here. Would you just take and help us to really understand what's going on inside of us that can free us to love well, to be whole people. There's a lot of things that have happened that we probably don't even understand, but we just ask your Holy Spirit to do the work that we need. May we have open hearts, open minds to just consider things. doesn't mean we're bad people, but you love us no matter what, and thank you for that. And so I just lift up every marriage that you would work in exactly what they need. And we love you. Give us safety as we go home. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the latest curriculum produced by Bridge to Life Ministries with your hosts, Don and Becky Smith. If you'd like more information, go to our website, bridgetolife.org.